0: Hello, and welcome to Romaniacs, which has now been elevated to a Tier 3 podcast. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky, and joining me this week is Roz Taylor, editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello. After months of cautious support for the government's COVID measures, Starmer has just called for a short circuit breaker lockdown, of about two weeks, in line with SAGE recommendations. So it seems to me that either Johnson agrees, which he hasn't done at PMQs, um But either he agrees in the coming days and Starmer uh, looks like he's making the running, or he doesn't, and then he takes sole responsibility uh, for any kind of negative consequences. Is this a rare example of a a risk-free tactic for Labour?
1: Well, Starmer certainly thinks so. And it is astute. It's a good move at the moment. It's good positioning. It fits with people's impression of Starmer's personality, which is safety first, which is cautious, which is responsible. It also shows empathy with the Northwest. If you're in the Northwest, you're already under quite strict lockdown measures. And so the prospect of a na- national lockdown is not quite so bad as it is if you're in, in parts of the country that aren't so badly affected. Um, that said, he didn't quite carry it off, I think, at PMQs today. Johnson was able quite effectively to argue that uh, a two-week lockdown was a nightmare scenario that we wanted to avoid at all costs. And I think there will be a proportion of the population who will agree that they, just at this moment, they cannot countenance the idea of that again. There is also a big risk to a uh, two-week sage lock- uh, a two-week lockdown of the kind Sage is proposing, which is not to say it's a bad idea at all. But it is what happens after two weeks. After two weeks, you will still have deaths going up. You will almost certainly still have hospitalizations going up. And at that point, you have to say, "Well, do we come out as we said we would, or do we stay in and break our pledge for it to be only two weeks?" And then you you have a real problem with trust and with people feeling let down again. That's said that will be Johnson's problem if it happens and not Starmer's.
0: Well you say a portion of the country but the latest poll says that 63% support and only 13% oppose so it, it does seem to be broadly popular even though obviously li- literally nobody wants a lockdown but the necessity seems to be popular.
1: I, I agree with you that is absolutely what the polls are saying. I am not completely convinced that the polls are reliable in this instance. I think that people are saying what they want uh, they, What they want pollsters to hear. And while they may want other people to lock down, that may not well not be the case for themselves. It's a very difficult thing polling in this, when you're asking questions where people feel they ought to give a certain answer.
0: Also with me is Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello. So right after we recorded last week, the Information Commissioner announced a finding that Cambridge Analytica was, quote, not involved in the Brexit referendum, but the related Canadian data company Aggregate IQ was. This was a huge story back in 2018. Uh, starting starting with the Observer, we obviously discussed it a lot of the time. Mm. Some of the coverage has implied that this was all sort of a paper tiger, and that 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 you know Cambridge Analytica's Alexander Nix was was Billy Bullshit. And we all we all fell for it. What do you make of of this finding and the uh, the coverage of it? It's a really strange letter, and and the strangest thing
2: about it is what it's in response to. So the Information Commission has found that Cambridge Analytica used data improperly in the 2016 US election. The Canadian Commission found that Aggregate IQ, its sort of sister company, lacked proper consent for data used in the Brexit referendum. A full report on this was promised to Parliament in April 2019. And yet when the committee writes asking where that report is, the Commissioner replies with a really superficial letter saying Cambridge Analytica was not involved with Brexit. Which was not an allegation;
0: it or anyone else was looking at. So, do you think that the uh, the, the, the kind of the top line uh, of the report so just sort of suggests? I don't know a kind of a desire to move on. Is there some kind of animus against uh, the observer and, and Carol Cadwellader, who was you know nominated for a Pulitzer for this story? Um, like, why why has there been such haste uh, to say, "Oh, nothing to see here"? I mean, mean, it's possible that
2: nothing to see here is the message they want to put out, or it's also possible that they just haven't done the work on this because of everything that's been going on. You know, you have to understand the Information Commission, just like any other organization, will have faced severe disruption in the last few months. So maybe they just haven't done the work. (laughs) Which is, I mean, that is relatable. <laughs> well, but, but uh, you know, that's a possibility. The problem is the reply raises more questions than it answers. So I would expect the DCMS committee to write back asking them. Um, Ian Lucas in Byline Times is a good person to read on this. He's a former MP and a member of the uh, a committee.
0: So, Thanks, Alex. Yeah, because it's, it's, it is a very complicated story uh, about which there's more to say. Our guests this week have been on the Brexit trail since the early days. Maria Sobolecka and Rob Ford are professors of politics and political science at the University of Manchester. They're also the authors of a new book called Brexitland, Identity, Diversity and the Reshaping of British Politics. And Rob was our guest at one of our last, for the time being, live shows at the Lowry in Salford last November, those many, many years ago. (laughs) Um, Hi, Maria and Rob. Welcome to Maniacs. Hi. Hi. Um, so, Rob, we just Ros were talking about how uh, the northwest is having a particularly rough time at the moment, and universities are, are one of the biggest uh, COVID flashpoints. So, what's it like in in the city and the university right now?
3: Uh, it's chaos, really. It's been very, very chaotic. Um, We began the semester a couple of weeks ago with the position being that we would be doing um, face-to-face teaching, Uh, that lectures would be online, but the teaching would be face-to-face. And there were so many cases uh, amongst University of Manchester students that they had to abandon that position after three days of the first week, which then meant that the entire teaching schedule of every single uh, university lecturer at this university and it's a very big university then had to be completely rescheduled to go online. Uh so yeah, it's uh it's interesting times. I mean, you could have I mean, I think many
0: people when they saw that there was uh, you know, that freshers uh were, were getting covid and um, would have thought this was not a complete shock and perhaps it could have been planned for differently. Do you think that that it was the government or the university sector that that made a mistake here?
3: I think that there's a lot of blame to go around. Clearly the it seems to me the Department for Education was putting quite a lot of pressure on the universities um, to continue with face-to-face teaching uh, and certainly not offering any kind of guidance to the contrary despite the fact that the SAGE report that you've already mentioned did say that one of the best things that could be done to bring the R-rate down would be to make uh, university teaching fully online. They didn't endorse that or push for that three weeks ago when freshers were just arriving. On the other hand, we haven't seen many university leaders coming out over the course of the summer and saying that what they were seeing on US campuses, for example, with major outbreaks was concerning them and that they were worried that uh, teaching was unsafe. Quite the contrary, they were quite happy to sort of go along with the government's message that face-to-face teaching would be fine.
4: So it, just to add to that, I think being in Manchester, Manchester University, we are um, our uh, VC faces additional charges, uh, I think, against her because she's, of course, the chair of the Russell Group now and I do think if she was leading the efforts to uh, develop a joint response, uh, they would be leading on trying to move everything uh, online until face-to-face is actually safe. That would have made a big difference because, of course, individually the universities are all worried that the students will go elsewhere. But I think if the Russell Group, such a big group of, of top universities in this country, have developed a joint approach, I think that would have been you know a a huge difference um Mm. and yeah and given her medical background as well i think we are all very surprised that that's not the the tack that she she took
0: this week marie and rob tell us all about their ethnographic adventures in brexit land plus covid rules across the uk are dividing what was already a very fragile union even further with local mps learning of local lockdowns via twitter and the news we discuss the separation of power and whether the union can survive Brexitland opens with a startling quote from The Guardian. One temptation should be avoided, to seek month after month to prove that membership of the community has created all Britain's ills. Above all, we should avoid creating a new semi-permanent rift in British society between pro and anti-Europeans. That was from the 1st of January 1973, the day the UK joined the EEC. <laughs> well, that rift uh, is certainly with us now, and Rio and Rob explain in the book how it came about. Firstly, can you briefly explain the origins? Did you start with a working... Hypothesis, did it emerge from, you know, from findings that you were doing in, in, in other
3: research? Um, I mean, the origin of this book is really our kitchen table as much as anything, because both of us work on different elements of this story and have done for a long time. So, my background is uh, in research on the politics of immigration and the radical right, and Maria's background is in research on uh, the politics of uh, ethnic minorities in Britain. Both of those are big elements of the story we wanted to tell uh, in in this book. So it. it the exact thesis we came out with took a long time to hammer out, but we really wanted to tell a big story that brought together those two things we have been working on, because we think that they're part of a, a bigger story, a bigger story that culminated in, in what happened in 2016.
0: Well, there's a great anecdote about the Sisters of Banbury in Oxfordshire in the 1930s, talking about white workers uh, from other parts of England, the way that Brexiters talk about immigrants now. Is that why, you know, you think that ethnocentrism is like a more useful... Uh, idea or word than, I suppose, what we would generally assume is racism or, or xenophobia, that it, it actually isn't necessarily about race or nationality, it's 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 about otherness.
4: Absolutely, and this really puts um, Brexit and the story of Brexit in a much broader context. Uh, what we are arguing in the book is that some people just have this tendency to be quite ethnocentric, and what this means is that they have a very strict division in terms of how they perceive the world between who they perceive as part of their in-group, so as part of the uh, the good old chaps that they are friends with and they like and they welcome, and the people who they consider others, and the people who they consider others, and that could be anything. It could be a different lifestyle, it could be a different ethnicity. Uh, But it could also be a different gender. Um, So it could really be absolutely anything. And science uh, shows examples. Political psychologists have those examples where people experience those uh, perceptions of otherness towards others based on uh, results of made-up tests, right? So it is really very easy to put those people who have those ethnocentric tendencies into that mode of thinking us and them, us is good, them is bad. And so what we are trying to highlight here is that these people always will have that tendency and it is really down to politicians then to mobilise those tendencies for the political ends or in fact uh, let them lie and concentrate on other aspects of politics. So this is where we are trying to argue here that this is not just the public opinion and just the people, the voters, but it really does depend on what the political uh, elite is doing, what the political parties is doing, how are they using this tendency for ethnocentrism among some people.
0: And one thing that sometimes trips me up is when we talk about white school leavers um, who tend to, are much more likely to be identity conservatives. I mean, obviously, many older voters didn't go to university. You've got the stats in there, actually, how few people went to university just a couple of generations ago. But does that same pattern apply even when you allow for age? So, uh, a, a, you know, a white school leaver who's like 25 is is also prone to be that way.
4: Yes, so we do uh, look at this. And uh, this is actually where our book turns a little bit optimistic amongst all this uh, drama of divided society and Brexit as as a kind of story of, of um, uh, British politics imploding. Because actually what we find when we look uh, at the white school leavers um, by age is that even though white people who don't go to university today uh, are still are, are more uh, kind of ethnocentric than white university graduates they are much more liberal than their parents and grandparents who didn 't go to university were and it is because they are growing up in a different country so it is um very important to to remember that the kinds of values that you hold don't only depend on the kind of life that you personally lead but also the kind of society that you live in so a school leaver today is still growing up in a society in which the wider and broader social change that means that more of of their peers are going to university has influenced most of people's uh, social values. But also when it comes to ethnic diversity, this person is already growing up in society in which they have much more inter-ethnic contact, even if they uh, live in a predominantly white area, than their grandparents would have had.
0: Hmm. Well, we weren't planning on the optimistic bit quite this early in the interview, but I'll (laughs) I'll, I'll take it. Um, Under Cameron, the Tories tried to detoxify the party to some extent. But is the party now electorally compelled to feed red meat to identity conservatives and sort of leave those conservatively inclined ethnic minority voters sort of, you know, on the table? Because, of course, there are many people in those groups who, who would naturally be conservative, but just aren't.
3: Well, I mean, the the success the Conservatives had in 2019 and indeed in 2017, winning over a a substantial chunk of this ethnocentric electorate, has basically sharpened problems that have been building for them for quite a while uh, with the identity liberal electorate. Because the problem they now have is that they're really strongly aligned to a section of the electorate that is slowly shrinking. And in addition, is a section of the electorate that tends to have relatively low trust they aren't lifelong partisan conservatives, so that they expect to be, as you put it, you know, fed red meat, and they won't be happy if the party doesn't continue to uh, show its alignment uh, with with their views. But if the conservatives do chain themselves too closely to that side of the electorate, then they risk alienating groups in the electorate that are going to keep getting bigger, uh, and that in the long run will pose them serious problems because an alignment that delivers a majority of 90 in 2019 will not be delivering a majority of 90 uh, in future elections, even if nobody else changes their minds. And of course, people may well change their minds. There's a pretty decent sized chunk of the Conservative vote that's pretty liberal. uh, And they were already on much polling expressing a good deal of ambivalence about the party as it is right now. So there's a risk that you start to alienate them and then start losing seats in more liberal parts of the country that have been voting Conservative for a very long time. Time. So, you know, Labour was shocked by the fall of the Red Wall, but there are there is a big C-shaped set of seats all the way around the edge of London in the home counties where you saw really big swings against the Conservative Party in the last couple of elections, making them much more marginal than they traditionally have been. And so maybe there's a blue wall fall to come in the future. Well, similarly,
0: do you think Labour should bet on the future and sort of go all in on identity Liberals, which, you know, would, would sort of help them in those seats you just described? Or continue you know to try and offer something to both groups and sort of I suppose hold that old coalition together and if they do, what can they offer to these identity conservatives without repelling the liberals?
4: So the problems uh, with labour going just for the the future and this vision of becoming a completely uh, identity liberal party is mostly in geography, and we touch upon this in the book quite a bit. And the problem is that the social change that we discussed at the very beginning of the book, the rise of ethnic diversity and rise in higher education, are not evenly distributed around the country. And this is uh, already a a kind of a stereotype of a Remainer being from a big cosmopolitan city. But that is the reality of Labour, that they already have a lot of these seats and, in fact. They will need to expand to win, and this is not even discussing Scotland, which of course poses its own problems. So Labour will have to win quite a few of these seats that are basically sitting on the fence. And of course, it is absolutely natural for them to try to change the conversation in order to, to win those um those sections of the electorate, but they have a huge problem. First of all, apart from geography, they also have a, a very big problem with the kinds of party that they have become in terms of their base, their activist base, their membership, and the parliamentary elites. This is a party that is basically predominantly now uh, identity liberal in those very visible elites. And so they have a a double problem appealing to social conservatives because they have lost uh, the vast majority of the MPs uh, and other politicians who were actually from those socially conservative areas, from those social backgrounds. And so even if they try to proactively appeal to this electorate, they just do not have that authenticity anymore.
2: Mm. Um, Okay. So just because I love tormenting guests, it's counterfactual time. So immigration began to resurge as an issue after EU enlargement to Eastern Europe in, in the 2000s, especially once the global financial crisis hit at the end of that decade. If Blair had known then what he knows now, could he have done anything to prevent that without sign, sounding like you know a, a Tory immigration hardliner?
3: Yes, actually, I th- I think he could have. I, and I think there are a number of things uh, he could have done. The first and, and most obvious one, and it's been discussed a lot by various Labour types ever since then, is that the, the same kind of transitional controls that were brought in in essentially every other European country, and which Blair and Jack Straw were not expecting other countries to bring in, Uh, If they knew, as they know now, that that was what was going to happen, they could have brought in similar controls here and thus made the process much less of a sharp shock. Mm. The second thing they could have done is essentially tell the British public that this was coming because there was no big discussion about this shift in policy largely because the people at the top of the Labour Party weren't expecting this to have a major impact. The template they were using was Spain and Portugal's accession when the migration to Britain was really quite modest and nobody really noticed. They expected the same thing. That's obviously not what they got. Uh, Knowing now that that, that this is what they were going to get, they could have prepared the ground more. And the third thing and in my view the most important thing is they should have married that change up with a change to citizenship rules. The migrants we got from the Commonwealth in the 1960s 60s and ever since, have had and continue to have voting rights from the day they arrive in the UK. There was already a majority in favour of providing EU migrants who've been living in Britain for three to five years with voting rights back then in 2004. If Labour had brought in that reform, then by the time we had the EU referendum in 2016, you would have had millions of EU citizens who'd been living here for five years, 10 years, 15 years, however long, who would have been able to participate in that referendum. And that might have had a big effect on how that referendum went.
2: Mm, I can't agree with that strongly enough, obviously. Um, Okay, counterfactual number two. The Social Attitude Survey shows steep and almost instant relaxation of attitudes to migrants after the referendum. What do you think would have happened if Remain had won? in 2016?
4: This is a very good question. I do think that probably we would have seen a continuation of that kind of churn that we saw just before the referendum. And I actually think the Conservative Party would have almost certainly not won the next election. Because of course, we keep forgetting that Part of the reason why the referendum was even floated was the internal tensions within the Conservative Party. And I think if the Remain has won, I don't think the the leavers in the Conservative Party on the Conservative benches would have actually uh, given up as easily as uh, Cameron assumed. I think there would have been a major temptation to join UKIP and to kind of um, press uh, to campaign more strongly on this issue and uh, kind of unleash the fury on on the parliamentary benches about that, I think Cameron has assumed that this would uh, put a lid on it. I really don't think he would have. Remain is basically
1: dead, certainly as far as the main political parties are concerned, and increasing the Lib Dems too. Are new divisions? Do you think? opening up to supersede the Leave Remain divisions? Do you see those beginning to emerge? And if so, what form are they taking? Uh,
3: I think it's more a case that we're potentially going to see the political identities that the referendum in its aftermath created, exerting a gravitational pull over how new issues emerging post Brexit are understood. Because We've got a unique situation here now where 90% of the British public uh, can spontaneously identify with either remain or leave uh, and basically know what those terms mean. Those, Those are tribes with emotional and symbolic and stereotypical content for them, So they're really useful heuristics for them to understand new conflicts that are emerging onto the political agenda. And I think we really saw that in action, for example, uh, in the Black Lives Matter debate over the past summer. That's a classic identity politics uh, issue where you would expect identity liberals to take a very strong anti-racist stance. And you'd expect identity conservatives to be uh, more sceptical, uh, I guess is the charitable way of putting it, about the, um, uh, the the movement, but people attach also the labels "lever and remainer to that now, so you saw in the polling over that particularly once it got going, that people were aligning with leave and remain type positions on that and i th- I think we will see that repeatedly in coming years, so these terms that originated. Uh, in the Brexit debate may end up taking a life on their own because they're shorthand for differences in values, differences in worldview that really carry a lot of meaning for people.
4: And you definitely see the emergence of this term woke and anti-woke in today's politics and media. And I think that's a very uh, easy replacement for Leave and Remainer, given the background and the value differences that we discuss in the book. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is uh, the one that we will be hearing more about. But really, they are names for the same two camps that we have seen uh, divided Mm -hmm. over Brexit. Well,
0: we did try wokey acts, but it just doesn't
4: work. (laughs) (laughs) To end on a
1: positive note, one reason for optimism is your argument that identity liberals didn't have a galvanizing cause prior to Brexit, whereas identity conservatives did. Anti-austerity was no match for anti-immigration, but now that's, that's changed. How could more active identity liberals, like our listeners perhaps, how can they reshape politics?
3: Oh, goodness. Well, that's that's a big question. Um, We're we're, we're, um, not not academics rather than activists. And academics often make poor uh, activists. Um, But but the value of what we've seen since Brexit is that there is a more symmetrical uh, argument out there now. It's now possible to make a pro-EU, pro-immigration, anti-racist case and have politicians listen to you because there's a recognition uh, of the power of that electorally.
4: And I think, uh, for example, one of the things that we already mentioned, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, we no longer see protests in the streets, but we do still see quite a lot of uh, petitions circulating about changing the school curriculum, for example. And of course, uh, we have the Black History Month. So I think keeping up those campaigns and those pressures would be extremely important and especially in the face of covid uh where it is very easily uh very easy to be distracted by the pandemic but actually that pandemic also has differential impact on ethnic minorities and so keeping that cause of anti-racism uh throughout i think would be very important
3: if i can also get uh, get in a word for my for, for another cause very close to my heart migrants rights uh, so we've already seen in the windrush scandal that uh the government uh, its traditional authoritarian position on immigration is now very much and increasingly at odds uh, with what voters want to see. Uh, and we have the potential for a new crisis to emerge in the post-Brexit landscape uh, over EU migrants because of the administration uh, of the sort of EU um, migrants rights process, which is like earlier migrants' rights processes in this country, deeply flawed. So that's an area where I think uh, activists on the Liberal side can apply a lot of pressure. And we've already seen repeatedly uh, that these Conservative governments' home offices are willing to respond to to that pressure when they see that they're on the wrong side of public opinion on that issue. So, you know, there's an opportunity still to avert a crisis on that. And so that's where I would hope a lot of energy gets devoted. Now, the
0: emergency COVID lockdowns across the north of England have put the division between Westminster and the Westminster into sharp relief. (laughs) Uh, Mayors, journalists and voters across the north are voicing their anger at being dictated to as city leaders discover what's happening in their towns through front pages, Twitter and Robert Peston's blogs. According to Lisa Nandy, the government doesn't even know where Wigan is. And a new report by End Child Poverty, which just came out, says that even before the pandemic, child poverty was rocketing in the North and Midlands, eight of the 10 uh, hardest hit areas. Is England, let alone the union, fracturing? Alex, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland each have their own approaches to COVID. Um, the government has tried to centralise control over England, even though English cities and regions are sort of desperate for for more uh, powerful, more local strategies. Has that approach failed? Is it going to have to be more more regional? Um,
2: I, I think, I don't think it's a one answer fits all, um, question. For instance, when it comes to things like test and trace, I think to have a national overarching, uh, sort of strategy is a disaster because obviously local people will know how to do that better. But when it comes to, for instance, uh, you know, anti, Uh, contagion rules, I think clarity and simplicity of the message is so key to their success that having a a sort of different set of rules, complicated rules, depending on one postcode or another, I think that will fall down. I I can't see that
0: working. And Scotland is perceived as doing much better than England and COVID and Wales, uh, too, perhaps to a lesser extent. Are they really doing better, or do they just have um, do they just have better messaging? That Nicola Sturgeon is just somebody that uh, is more trustworthy than Boris Johnson.
2: Better messaging is part of doing better. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's possibly one of the key components of doing better. Um, I I had a look at a, a fairly comprehensive study by the Centre for Constitutional Change that looked at the totality of what we loosely term as the first wave, and found that COVID death rate trajectories peaked sooner in both Scotland and Wales and came down faster. So one could say that national lockdown, which came too late for England, came even more disastrously late for Scotland and Wales. But death rates were significantly above national average for England and consistently below for Wales and Scotland. So I think, yes, they have
0: objectively done better. Um, Ross, I heard Frank Cultural Boyce on the Today programme saying that he, he actually missed Spring's national lockdown, lockdown gold, because the whole country was in the same <laughs> boat there. Um, now, local lockdowns are driven by local infection rates, but they, they are all currently in the north. Um, is this crisis sort of making the relationship between national and local government, the north and the south, worse or, or at least more more strained?
1: Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, it also contains enormous opportunities in some ways for metro mayors in the north. It's interesting that you've seen um, you've seen the London mayor, uh, Sadiq Khan, whose authority has really diminished because he's been basically TfL's funding, on which he greatly depends, is being uh, held so tightly and can, in, is being manipulated so much by central government that he doesn't have as much leeway as he used to conversely in the north they know that they can uh, they can basically demand certain things in exchange for cooperation about over covid measures so this puts the whole metro mayor thing i mean previously they were seen as you know a nice democrat a nice a democratic nice to have but not something that had genuine power and now of course because of covid they do Um, It's also worth uh, mentioning that Johnson himself has no real idea, I think, of how to hold North and South together. If you read his conference speech uh, last week, the only mention of the North was North London in the context of a cultural jibe. The only mention of Scotland and Wales were in the context of wind power. Uh, he really doesn't think about this stuff. And he certainly hasn't given any attention to how to negotiate this new and difficult and fragile relationship.
0: Um, Rob, the prominence of some of these uh, regional mayors, Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, does that make the case for a, a larger mayoral-based system in this country? When New Labour introduced uh, mayors, like they, they took on in some places and then and then not not in others. But do you think there'll be more appetite for these figures?
3: I mean, it's 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 hard to say because there wasn't a great deal of appetite for them when they were introduced. Um, but I suspect because of the dynamics that we're starting to see here, the sort of push and pull dynamics with the mayors, the big regional mayors setting themselves up as defenders of particular cities or city regions against the hostile government, that's a great dynamic for building your legitimacy with voters, building your profile. And it may well be that other places look at this and think, well, I'd rather like to have an Andy Burnham make in my case for my city uh, or a Steve Rotherham, because at the moment we're also getting knocked over by government, but there's no one in our corner. Uh, So I think it could well uh, stimulate uh, that kind of demand. Uh, The difficulty is not everywhere has like an obvious population centre to build a city region mayor around. So. I wonder what will happen for the places, uh, you know, those rather famous towns uh, that were so crucial in the 2019 election. Uh, How would this kind of system work for them?
0: And I've seen I've seen some um, uh, journalists from Manchester and Liverpool, for example, sort of really complaining about the way that the the London media um, or London based media talks about the north. And and I know it's the concept of the Red Wall, which didn't even exist until about a year ago uh now it just seems to mean the entire north and of course if you've ever <laughs> lived in the north or even visited the north um or 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 like read something <laughs> about the north um you'll know that they do, it's not this homogenous thing and the people in manchester it's not all like much of a muchness uh for the people actually living there do you think that that, that there is a problem that it is just this sort of uh, sort of undifferentiated not london mass
4: Oh, absolutely. And when we first moved uh, to Manchester, uh, I think it was 2007, we did actually listen to BBC Radio in a car. And uh, there was this journalist who referred to anything out of uh, London, the have-nots, which made us laugh. And uh, I think the society did try to, or rather the elites of the society did try to fix it a little bit by sending bits and bobs of the BBC up north and things like that. But the only result that that seems to have is that now we have people on Twitter saying, don't do it to the north. We are not just the only one math, but it's not actually really changed. So, But I also heard people from Manchester being accused of not representing the north and not being the real north anymore because of uh, how... <laughs> crazy the uh, housing market is here and and how much more we earn and etc so yeah the north lives on in people's imagination and it's what you might want, I think
2: in fairness i i think my experience of uh, whenever i i go north is that that people there think of the south as one entity
4: oh absolutely <laughs> yes, yes.
0: Well, that's, <laughs> that's fair enough robert R- 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 uh, Rob, as an academic, do you find the, the the red wall, the sort of the sudden fashionability of, of that phrase and the way that it, it, it seems to have come to mean a lot more than those seats which switch from Labour to Conservative? Is that a bit problematic?
3: Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, at a certain level, I, I have some sympathy with it because we all think in heuristics and stereotypes and journalists, you know, on tight deadlines and word limits will will reach for phrases and terms that have become resonant because it just saves time saves words on the other hand these things do develop a kind of mission creep uh, and in fact it was it was evident even before the term got coined uh, because I remember, like in 2017, uh, in the run-up to the 2017 election, there was this series of reports you'd get on Newsnight, you'd get in the Guardian, you get in the FT that I used to think of as kind of like Brexit safaris. Uh, so a reporter who'd left the North in in their 20s would return to the town of their birth, which would inevitably be like Grimsby or Scunthorpe or um, uh, Wigan or something like that, and then talk about it in these kind of like uh, grim green filter terms, all these pathologies we don't understand, and then they go back to London. Um, uh, so that kind of stereotypical thinking uh, amongst generally London-based journalists kind of already existed before the term red wall gave them a really easy-to-reach-for name for it, I think.
0: Um, Maria, you explain in the book, as I promised, we are going to talk about the S&P. Stand, stand down, Scottish listeners. Um, you explain in the book how the s p has so far managed to sort of to turn Scottish ethnocentrism against England, while be, and Westminster, while being pro-EU and centre-left, which which means that it can be, you know, it's this very sort of benign and progressive sort of nationalist party. Uh, the latest poll, a uh, Sosmori poll, says that fifty-eight percent of Scots now support independence versus forty-two percent no. Do you think therefore the Scottish ethnocentrism has the potential to become uglier and to perhaps to turn on a different target
4: so uh Scottish ethnocentrism uh one very important thing to remember here is that the Scottish society isn't that different to the English society. So we do still have very similar trends in terms of diversity and education. And so we have very similar proportions of people who are ethnocentric in Scotland. And it really is the political history of Scotland that made uh, the main proponent of independence the party on the left that was trying to compete with Labour for votes and therefore opposing Thatcher, opposing England and I think one of the reasons why we will see a problem of this big divide in Scotland is that what has happened to SNP and I think this is behind this rise in support is that there has been a marriage of sort or of the causes of independence and this dream of remaining in the EU what I think will happen is that there will be a clarification of if you are an ethnocentric voter and you do not like the EU, you will lean towards the conservative. And I think I referred previously to this problem for Labour here. There will be a Two party divide between the Scots who want to see the return to the EU and independence, and the Scots who will uh, seek the opposite and, and go over to the Conservatives. I really cannot imagine how can there be a space for this additional division over left right and economy, and therefore room for Labour. So I do think what we will see is that kind of polarization, but with just different political parties involved.
0: Mm. Ross, we do have a sense of different local English identities. There are two, the North and the South. Um, no, but, you know, if, <laughs> if you've actually kind of been around the country,
3: you know, you do have
0: a very clear sense of the difference between, you know, sort of the West Country and East Anglia and the Northwest and the Northeast and so on. But, I mean, there's a tendency, I think, to see the devolved nations as monolithic. It's like, well, what's, what does Scotland think? You know, from the cities through to the to, to the Outer Hebrides. You know, what does Wales think? What does Northern Ireland think? Do you think we also need a more sophisticated, heterogene- heterogeneous view of those nations to, under- to really understand them?
1: Yeah, we we absolutely do, and it's very lazy to talk about even wales you know as an entity when south wales is very very different culturally from north wales and then south wales the swansea and cardiff and newport are very is a very different place from pembrokeshire and mid wales is different again it it's it's uh, i could go on but i won't it's, um, they're, it's they're extremely diverse nations and to ignore that which we tend to do because we haven't really thought about wales as a political entity in in Westminster, in Britain, in any meaningful in any meaningful way, there's the been the Welsh Assembly, and the Welsh Assembly was, you know, given to the Welsh in quite a patronising way, perhaps, by Tony Blair's reforms in the, in the late 90s, and that was seen as kind of dealing with the issue of Wales, and it doesn't deal with the issue of Wales. I think what you've seen in the last few months has been a deep and sort of growing resentment of the idea that Wales and Scotland are if you like, holiday playgrounds for the English. And, of course, that's intensified when you get a Prime Minister who goes up to Scotland and stays in a cottage and might or might not have slept in a teepee in the garden, but, you know, is is supposedly there, but isn't really there in any meaningful sense. But the idea that that there are places to which the English can escape from their pandemic hell has created deep, deep and understandable resentment, I think. And I think it's that at that point that independence becomes even more thinkable for these nations because they're saying well it turns out that you know we are surviving without tourists and and what what, what is our cultural identity how uh, we we want to be an engine of prosperity too and not just some sort of adjunct where English people come to holiday.
0: So there's that that latest poll about Scottish independence um and there was like I think a new statesman cover a couple of weeks ago about how Covid and Brexit combined were going to kind of hasten um, Scottish independence we've obviously talked about the consequences of Brexit for Northern Ireland many many times do you think that the combination that the union can survive the combination of these two these two things Brexit and Covid
1: I think it might survive nominally but it will come out of it a very very different union a union where Scotland e- has More and more independence, where Wales is again. Also, it goes in the same direction. It's not going to be the same. It's ever since the late nineties, things have begun to change. And I think Scotland will. I think Northern Ireland will be the first to splinter off, followed by Scotland and potentially Wales. It's hard to make these kinds of predictions, but it certainly won't look like the same union that it did before.
0: Now it's time for To The barricades. Each week we choose a noble cause for Romaniacs listeners to support. Maria Sobolecka and Rob Ford, uh, which causes are close to your heart?
3: Uh, Well, a a cause we really wanted to flag up as close to our hearts is is the Workers' Rights Centre, which is an organisation that works with um, migrant labourers, particularly EU migrant labourers, to help uh, secure employment justice uh, for them. So basically... They recognize we, i think and we recognize too as researchers on migration that a lot of migrants come to this country very uh, with very little knowledge uh, of how laws and regulations work here and they get exploited uh, and this this is an organization whose whole work is devoted to pushing back uh, against that uh, and uh, we think that is an absolutely fantastic cause uh, and one we would happily mount the barricades to support. Before we go, time for a couple of quick bits of Brexit news. Um,
0: Ros, October the 15th was meant to be the final, final definite no-returns crunch time for the EU talks. We're recording the day before. What's happening with that deadline?
1: Uh, it's not a deadline. It is a, It is a dead deadline. <laughs> It no longer has a meaningful existence. Uh, it has been pushed forward because um, both sides would can kind of imagine the other side now making a concession, whether it's on state aid, whether it's on fish whether it's on level playing field generally, and they are waiting for the other side to make that concession in order to be able to make some progress. Um,
0: And meanwhile, in the Commons, the attempt to make the agriculture bill match the government's own promises failed uh, on Monday, despite widespread protests from farmers, many of whom uh, famously voted for Brexit. What's the problematic bit of the bill uh, for farmers?
1: Um, It's about mandating EU standards for imports, basically. If we allow in lots of cheap food from abroad that hasn't been raised according to those EU standards, it will mean that British farmers can't compete with that and they may well go out of business. It's also, by the by, bad, of course, for uh, the animals and the environment that, that are involved in producing that food. But that is almost a side issue in terms of where the pressure and the lobbying is coming from. So there is a lot of lot of concern from organisations like the National Farmers Union about that. And what they would like to see now is something like a trade and agriculture commission, which would scrutinise any trade deals we did with countries like the US and decide whether they enforced high enough food standards in Britain that may or may not eventually make its way. And and the question, of course, is how toothless or toothsome or powerful that body might be. The government has kind of suggested that we could have clearer labelling so that, you know, you'll be clear whether you were eating crap food or good food but but farmers and others understandably pointed out that that works to up to a certain point but it d- doesn't have much clout with poorer consumers and also uh if you're eating food if you're eating out if you're in a restaurant if you're at a takeaway and you don't see that kind of so did michael
0: gove lie to that farmer In that clip, yeah, yeah, he did. (laughs) Okay, just checking. Um, Alex, we just learned the UK Space Agency spaffed sixty-four million pounds on an abandoned attempt to develop a GPS replacement for the EU's Galileo system, which we can no longer be a part of. Now, Business Secretary Alok Sharma is investing four hundred million pounds in OneWeb, a satellite firm with no navigational capabilities, which recently entered bankruptcy. What is the right way to look at that, do you think? Is it localised incompetence and and bad judgement, and so you can point the finger at Sharma or the space agency, or should we see it as the inevitable consequences of leaving an EU venture as big and successful as Galileo, that it is going to cost a lot of money and probably some mistakes?
2: Well, you could look at it as something that's going to cost a lot of money if that's what they were getting in exchange, but they're not. Uh, I mean, the satellites that form part of the the uh, one web network have no such technology gps they're too small to be retrofitted uh, simply put, we've bought the wrong satellites. I've written about this extensively. There may have been a promise that if the company survives and if it is technically doable, it will try to piggyback this technology on its next generation of satellites. Experts doubt this is even feasible due to technical consideration to do with the height of their orbit. So, I mean, 400 million... It seems a lot of money to spend uh, on a thing that may or may not work out.
0: Is, it, is that just an inevitability in a sense that like, this is what happens with Brexit, is that you've, you've got, you've got well, to try and scramble companies to try and replace something uh, very big and effective?
2: To give you an idea of how important this is, the government's own analysis says that if we are left Without GPS capability, the cost to the economy is one billion pounds a day, which is one sixth of our entire GDP. So, this isn't small stuff. I mean, I defer to the, to the experts. Giles Thorne, a specialist in the field at Jefferies International, says this situation looks like nationalism trumping solid industrial policy. I can only concur. So
0: we've reached the end of the show. Thanks to Roz. Thanks, Dorian. Alex. Thank you. And our special guests, Maria Sobolecka and Rob Ford.
4: Thank you. Thanks.
0: Brexitland, identity, diversity, and the reshaping of British politics is out now in all real and cyber bookshops. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon as a Monster, by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers.
2: Thank you for your support to Catherine Owen, Joanne Potter, and Stephen
0: Fitzgerald.
1: Hello, and thank you from me to Viv Huddy, Matt Gordon-Smith, and Keith Lastenberg.
0: And thanks from me to Pels, Ashling O'Loughlin, and David Bingham. Take care, and we'll see you next week.
3: Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Alex Andre. Audio Production Scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archibald. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.